Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about suicide and sexual abuse, which some listeners may find extremely upsetting or distressing. So please listen with caution. guys how are we all doing thanks for joining me for another episode of the just checking in podcast this podcast as always is brought to you by vent a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about the mental health issues break down stigmas and start conversations i'm your host freddie cocker each pod i check in with a very special guest we have anata and chat about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about if it helps that person with their mental health we discuss it My special guest for this week's episode is an American academic who's currently living and studying in London and researching a very stigmatised and taboo subject. Devell Heath is a PhD candidate at Lancaster University and his PhD aims to explore and understand the lived experiences of black American men that have been sexually assaulted by women via the made-to-penetrate tactic as an adult. In this episode, we discuss Devell's journey into academia and the reasons that he wanted to explore this topic of male sexual abuse by female perpetrators. We outline the scale of the problem and the research and factors behind it, sexual racism black men face in wider society, and the stigma men face in reporting the abuse and recognising the abuse even happened to them at all. We also explored Devell's upbringing and the sexual abuse he experienced at the hands of both female and male perpetrators in his childhood, adolescence and adulthood. Devell's life could have ended up in a very different place after he also joined a gang as a teenager. We talk about how and why he joined it, how he ended up in prison for a period of time, a suicide attempt and subsequent hospitalisation and how through reflection and self-improvement he has got to where he is today. So this is how my conversation with Devell Heath went. Javel Heath, welcome to the Just Checking In Pod, bro. Thank you so much for coming on. When my good friend Will Costello pointed me towards the study you're doing at the moment, I just knew I had to get you on and, and share your story. So first off, how are you, man? I'm good, man. I'm good. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me on and even being interested in my research. I do appreciate it. No, for sure, man. It's my pleasure. There's a lot of really stigmatized issues we're going to discuss in your work and your own life, Devel. So thank you again for sharing your story with me. Without further ado, let's start the show. Let's do it. I want to talk about your academic journey first, Avell. So tell me how and why you got into academia. I understand it was a particular professor who encouraged you. Is that right? Yes, yes. So I went off to college and uh, originally I was exercise science. And then I took a communications class. I took the communications class and we each had to teach a chapter. So I taught the chapter and then my professor was like, hey, Devel, I would like to speak to you after class. So after class, I'm like, oh, man, hopefully she don't realize I plagiarized or something like that. But uh, <laughs> she was like, you know, you taught this very well. and You speak uh, very well in front of people. Have you ever thought about being a professor? And I was like, you know, I really haven't. And when she told me that, literally the next day I went to go change my major to uh, communication. And now I'm getting my PhD. So Amazing. Yeah, that's how my journey started. And then so far, before we go into the topics that you discussed in the study that you're working on, what challenges have you encountered on this journey? You know, just being young and being in school, that can uh, well in your psyche because the older you get, you know, the more you get in your 20s, your friends are working, right? So now you're kind of like itching, you're itching to be finished. So that's that's one challenge. And another, another challenge is, you know, the bureaucracy of it, you know, being a man, mm. being a black man, being younger, 
you know, all of these things play a role in your progression and how people see you within academia. The reason I came across you, Devel, is a study that you're working on, which is around male sexual assault victim survivors by female perpetrators, specifically using this tactic called made to penetrate. So can you explain why you wanted to do this study, what that term is for the listeners who might think that sexual assault or sexual abuse is purely perpetrated by males? Okay, so I wanted to do that really to one debunk that theory, further debunk that theory or that that stereotype that sexual violence is mainly done, you know, by males. So that's one. Two is there was a national study done by the CDC that showed that made to penetrate was the uh, main tactic in which women employed to uh, use sexual violence against men, right? And research, I wanted to further understand this, like what is this made to penetrate? So essentially made to penetrate is when a woman compels a man, compels a man or directly makes him physically penetrate her orally, vaginally, or annually, right? So that's either done by sexual coercion or by physical force. And I really wanted to look at that and try to understand how it manifests itself. I'm sure you've spoken to male sexual abuse survivors through doing this research, Devel. So tell me about some of their stories, obviously without revealing identities. What did you find out? Did anything shock you? Did anything not shock you? It, it was shocking and then it wasn't shocking as well because I've been in this field for a little while now. So I start to understand certain things. But the shocking part was it was a lot of similarities. Like if you speak to women who have been sexually assaulted, you hear trends, right? You hear trends. And a lot of those same trends happen, you know, to men, right? So one of the things that came up was drugs and alcohol. A lot of men, this happened to them when they are under the influence of alcohol. So, and it just kept coming up, kept coming up. And typically when we think of sexual violence with alcohol, we think of men doing it to women, right? But the most common way was while men was under the influence of alcohol. So that one was kind of a surprising and then also most men who have been sexually assaulted they are adolescents it happened in their adolescence so between you know 12 to 18 and it was it was by an older women so we speak a lot about this happening to young men but we're not talking about the perpetrators who are these women that are doing this why aren't we speaking about that as well so that's another thing that the survivors was wondering like, hey, this happened to me, but we're not speaking about the perpetrators. So for them to be that kind of conscious, you know, that was also surprising. This is one of the most stigmatized issues in men when it comes to the mental health conversation, as you're probably well aware, Devel. And there's a lot of stigma here. So what factors are there that you found behind the stigma and why the stigma is so high? Is it, for example, fear of emasculation by other men? Is it fear of being cancelled if they make their story public? Is it not being believed or something else entirely that I've not thought of? Literally, it's, it's everything. You know, the role of a man has been stagnant since, you know, the beginning of the time, right? So as we embrace other genders, the man is supposed to stay the same, right? Supposed to be the provider, supposed to be this certain type of being. So almost every stereotype you can think of adds to it. You know, you need to be a man. You need to uh, hide your feelings. Don't speak about this. Although this happened to many men. You could be in a room full of 10 men. This has happened to at least three of them, right? But you can't, you can't speak about it. What else? Men can't be raped. 
they can't be physically forced. What else? The emasculation, like literally every stereotype that makes a man, quote unquote, not a man, is used or employed, essentially prevent survivors from coming forward. In your work and speaking to these survivors, you told me that blackmail is a tactic that's often been used by female perpetrators on these male victim survivors. What do they blackmail them with? What is threatened if they don't do what they want? So blackmail in this instance, typically it is two things. So it's the, and this is least common, which is basically, hey, I'm going to say that you sexually assaulted me or I need money or something like that. So that type of blackmail, but that is not really, really common, but it's it's not rare. So the main type of blackmail, it happens in relationships. And, you know, the blackmail is really sexual coercion. So basically like, hey, threats of ending the relationship, threats of stepping outside of the relationship, threats of messing with somebody's friend. So in order for you to preserve the relationship, you feel compelled to have uh, sex, right? You feel compelled to do any sexual favors that she will want you to do. And that's where the blackmail comes in. Like either you do this or I'm stepping outside of the relationship. We're going to discuss your own experiences of this issue in depth later in the pod develop. But as a survivor yourself, did you see yourself in some of the men you spoke to? Oh, yes, yes, definitely. You try not to because they look at you as the expert and you're the researcher. So you try not to, but you definitely see yourself like, some of the stories that they say, how they tell the stories, when they tell stories of grooming, right? You just like, oh, this has happened, you know, to me as well. But as a as a researcher, as an academic, you have to uh, step outside and be as objective as possible. You spoke about a disconnect between the mental health trauma that these men had experienced and the abuse they had gone through. And on average, for a lot of male sexual abuse survivors, the disclosure time is about 20 years. And sometimes it can flip between around lower than that or higher than that. Why do you think it takes so much time to make that connection and become open about it or just disclose it to one person? Is it suppression? Is it something else entirely? No, no, it's definitely it's definitely one suppression into not being able to recognize what happened. So a lot of men, they experience these things. They don't know that it has happened so they can't rationalize it, right? They just know how it makes them feel. Now, there are some guys who clearly can tell you what happened, but they won't say, hey, this was rape or sexual assault. A lot of the times when men were, you know, raped or sexually assaulted, they just say, oh, it was sex because it matches up with the stereotype where, you know, I, I had sex. I had sex with a woman, so it must be sex. I had a sexual encounter with a woman, so it must be sex. So although you're 12 and she may be 22, and now you have anxiety, now you have depression, it really weighs on your psyche. Well, I just had sex. I had a bad sexual experience. Was it a bad sexual experience or were you sexually assaulted, right? So it's not knowing. It's us as a society not speaking about it. So that's why a lot of men can't really it doesn't really register to them. And when it does register, they suppress it. And then finally, probably one day, something triggers it. They may go to therapy or they may speak to a friend and they come to the conclusion that this actually has happened to them. Like you said, Devel, your study isn't just looking at men in general, but black American men in particular. And sexual racism and stereotyping is one thing you wanted to talk about. So for the listeners who don't know what that term is, what is sexual racism and how do black men experience it in society and what is the effect it has on their mental health? Okay, great. So sexual racism is essentially 
you know, there are different forms of racism, right? You know, economic, medical. So sexual racism is basically racism based on your sex and based on your sex and your race. So um, the intersection, the intersection of that. So being a black male, we experience a lot of sexual racism through stereotypes, right? And now these stereotypes aren't just, oh, stereotypes that men, non-black men would face. You know, these are, you know, a black man, his, his, his penis is bigger, right? A black man should be superior when it comes to sex. A black man is tougher. So these are stereotypes that actually really, really hurt black men because if a black man doesn't have a large penis, if he isn't aggressive during sex, he doesn't feel like a man, like a man at all. And that can weigh on his psyche and that can cause him to overcompensate in different ways. And some of those ways end up being violent ways. So it causes a lot of you know cognitive dissonance within black men. Another racial trope, which is sometimes used in sports, subconsciously or consciously, maybe by commentators or by writers, is animalistic language yes. around black players and black athletes. So, for example, the term beast or animal being used to describe a player's athletic performance. Why is that harmful for listeners who might maybe use it casually or without even noticing they're doing it? Well, because it reiterates the black male brute stereotype, which is basically, like you said, animalistic. He's a beast. He's a monster. Basically, he's more than human, right? And on the surface of it, when it comes to sports, oh, that sounds you know great. But it's always used to describe these black athletes. So when a black athlete is outran by a white athlete or an athlete of another color, he's looked at as not good at all because he wasn't physically superior in that specific uh, element. Right. Although it may have been, you know, he may be injured or something like that because he didn't win that specific thing, because he is looked at as this beast, this monster, this superior athletic being. He's trash, right? Essentially, if he doesn't beat him every time. You might not be as well-versed in soccer or football as I am, Devel. I'm not sure what your your sports um, interests are. But in football particularly, there's a lot of black players who are, for example, wingers or strikers or fullbacks or maybe centre-backs. But there's not a lot of number 10s or really creative or artistic black players. Do you think this plays into that maybe subconsciously or maybe in a way makes coaches force a particular black player down one position and maybe he could have been a number 10 or a creative midfielder yeah no no um I do I do watch soccer you know uh football <laughs> but that's ironic that you say that because I'm a big American football fan and we have what we, what you call skills positions and then you have basically big man positions and I'm gonna speak for American football and uh, soccer right now. In most of the other positions, you don't need to, quote unquote, think as much. And I'm assuming that's what you're, you know, you're referring to. You don't need to, quote unquote, think as much as like the wingers or, you know, in American football, the wide receivers. You just need to run. You know, you just need to be athletic. So that's a problem because you're saying that I can't be as critical in this sport as my counterparts. Right. And it definitely does force you down a certain path. Like a lot of kids may want to, you know, they want to play a certain position, but they like, no, no, you're fast. Go be a winger or you're fast. Go be a wide receiver. And um, in American football, the quarterback runs the whole offense. And it's a big debate right now. Like We need more black quarterbacks. There's a lot of black quarterbacks that's in a college or university. 
And when they go to the professional league, they force them to be wide receivers or running backs. And these are skilled positions where they're just running, right? But on the other hand, non-black players, they feel like they may not make it as, you know, a winger or on these skilled positions, right? So now they first to do these other like more critical thinking. They may not they may not have the uh the acumen to play that position. They may have the acumen to play a winger, but they can't because they're not black. So it affects us all. It's a vicious cycle, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Let's reflect on your academic journey now, Devel. What has it taught you about yourself so far? And what has the study taught you about yourself as well? Uh, what has it taught me? It has taught me that I'm more adaptable than what I uh what I thought. <laughs> I'm more adaptable than what I thought. <laughs> It has taught me that I can hang with the best of them. A lot of times when you come into this field, you can have imposter syndrome. Or, you know, any any field that you're new in, you can have imposter syndrome. But um, I am who I thought I am. That's what it's uh, really taught me, that I am who I thought I am, and, and I can do this, right, intellectually. What has the study taught me? The study has taught me that I'm not alone, and that men who think they're alone, they aren't alone. And we face this a lot. It also made me sad though you know it also made me sad that we don't have a place not even among ourselves to speak about these things and that kind of reaffirmed what i already thought but we move try to we've talked about Devel, the academic let's talk about your own journey now Devel, and go a bit deeper so i ask all my special guests this question first walk me through early life in the u.s teenage years and looking back were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint who's the Devel we meet here well growing up i grew up in youngstown ohio which is northeast ohio usa i don't know if a lot of people would know where that's at cleveland ohio so where i grew up is a very impoverished area a dangerous area I want to say a regular inner city within the States, but essentially a regular inner city within the States. And then I moved around quite a bit after the age of 12. But in the summers, I lived with my mom. So I will always go back to this environment. Growing up, I didn't like my childhood. I tell my parents this all the time. I didn't like my childhood. I wasn't able to express myself. And because I wasn't able to express myself and I really wasn't listened to a lot or shut down, I became a narcissist, right? So I would create these narratives in my head that made me the main character a lot of the times in order to cope. And I didn't realize this till years later. And I, you know, I'll tell you why this happened. And at the time it was, it was a coping mechanism. And then, you know, some things happened to me when I was a child. So I was sexually assaulted as a child. I was molested by a family friend. And at the time I didn't realize how it affected me. I didn't realize how it affected me really until probably two years ago. And I'm 26 now. So it took me until I was 24, right? So growing up in my adolescence, I was a smart kid, but, you know, sometimes you can become a product of your environment. So, you know, I was doing the things that teen boys do, you know, getting into trouble. Then I start trying to get quick money and then I end up uh, getting locked up. So I was locked up for a little bit when I was at age 17. You know, I got out. And then I went off to college. It was a big battle for me because a lot of people, they change in order to go to college or university, but university is what changed me, right? So I got there and that's when I understood what mental health was, you know, because in a uh, black community or a lot of marginalized or uh, communities of people, well, with people of color, mental health isn't, isn't a big thing, right? So that's when I start to understand what mental health is and how I faced it 
So thinking about it, I really started experiencing mental health issues around 12, if I can recall. Let's go back to the abuse if we can, because it happened by a male perpetrator. Yeah. So given the person was in your family circle and wasn't a stranger, were you more afraid you wouldn't be believed if you did speak up? And what were the mental scars it left you with, for example, masculinity or the way you viewed yourself or maybe even sexuality? Well, I was living with my mom at the time and we didn't have a place to go. Like, you know, we would have been homeless. And my dad wasn't in the picture at the moment because my my mother was keeping us away from my dad for personal reasons, right? But I ended up being raised by my dad. When this was happening, when someone grooms a child, they look for certain elements. They look for certain things to play on. And one of the things was, hey, if you tell what happens, you know, y'all going to be out in the streets, right? So I was already being made fun of at school. And I always fought a lot at school. And I didn't want to have another reason for, you know, kids to try to make fun of me by being homeless. So that was one of the main things. Like, hey, I'll give you a dollar or five dollars because, you know, we was poor. So I give you a dollar or five dollars if you do this or, you know, you tell anybody then you're going to be homeless. And as a kid who has to grow up fast, you have to think about your family. Right. So if I shut my mouth then my family, you know, they really make you feel a certain type of way. My whole family situation was on me, you know, and I'm like, what, eight or something like this. So it made me feel like my whole family living situation was on me. And what would you do if you know, you're a child. You don't want your mom or your brothers and sisters to be out in the street. So you're going to do what you're going to do, right? How did it affect me? Once I got older, I think in a way it made me look at sexuality differently. When I encountered gay individuals, I always, for some reason, I had sympathy for them. More sympathy than, you know, because years ago when, you know, homophobia was still, you know, homophobia is still a thing, Right. But when I was younger, I felt like it was more. I was never that type mm. of individual. And because when I was younger, I used to think I was gay because of the stuff that I was you know, forced to do. But I was attracted to women. I was attracted to girls, so I really couldn't understand. And I have no concept of sexuality when I'm younger, so I didn't know if bisexual was a thing. Like All of these things you grapple with within yourself. But also, and there's been studies to prove this, individuals who were sexually assaulted when they were younger tend to be more promiscuous. So that was another thing. Like my first encounter with a sexual activity wasn't out of love or lust. So I looked at sex as just another activity. So when I would get depressed or anxious or anything, all right, let me go have sex, right? And it can affect your relationships. You meet a a, a girl and you don't understand why she puts so much weight on sex. And obviously this is not every woman, but a lot of women you encounter, especially when you're younger, like, no, we need to be in a relationship. And I'm just like, listen, whatever. I'm going to go have sex with somebody. And that can be a problem because you put your sexual health, sexual health comes into play and you put your sexual health at risk. So, yeah, it affects you. You said to me off air that abused people are more likely to be abused again. And unfortunately, this was the case with you, Develle. Yeah. After you were abused by that male family friend, you were then abused by a female. Yeah or multiple females, if I'm right in saying, what form of abuse did that take? And could you clarify if it was more than one person? Yes, it was It was more than one person, actually. And yes, you're right. Abused people tend to be more likely to be abused again. And I'm not alone in this. 
and I, I found this out through my research that this has happened with men from multiple women and the way that it typically would happen, you know, I'd be uh, intoxicated, you know, alcohol, and then a woman would force herself on me, right? And this was really prevalent between 18 and 24. And this is a big age for young men. Well, I say between 17 and 24, right? Because you're coming into yourself, you're trying to, you know, you have your testosterone is high, you're trying to have more sexual encounters, you're trying to figure out life. So during this time, yeah, I kept having these encounters with these women. Now that I think about it, you know, we're like non-consensual sexual encounters or sexual assault encounters. And I'd be drunk and they would come on to me. It'd be sexual coercion. Like, say, I don't want to have sex. I'm laying down. I turn around. The woman is masturbating on me. And I'm just like, okay. And at the time, I'm just like, well... It's just non-consensual sex, or it just made me feel weird. But then you start to get anxiety. A girl comes over late night at at 11, or she wants to come over, and you don't want her to come over just in case y'all end up being in a sexual position, right? So it it can be a lot on you. When it first happened, was your worldview changed? Were you shocked that they could abuse you? Did you have a perception of women that meant you believe they couldn't be capable of this or not? Yes, yes, I did. But actually, when it first happened, I didn't recognize it. And this is the problem, because this is a barrier that a lot of us face. When these things happen, in our head, we don't know that they happened. We just know how it made us feel. When I speak to men about my topic, my research topic, a lot of them, they'd be like, wait, wait a second. When I explain to them what it is, they'd be like, wait a second, that happened to me. My follow-up question is like, oh, what happened with you and the girl? Man, I don't talk to her. I blocked her. Or I don't talk to her. Like, so they use the mechanism to get away from that individual. But to them in their head, well, it was just sex, right? It was just a bad sexual experience, not knowing that you were sexually assaulted or raped. So I didn't register it until years later, until I became educated on this topic, until I met other individuals. And that's what I was like. Yeah, I can pinpoint this woman and this woman. This is how it happened. You know, I, re- I remember that night. It made me feel disgusting, right? Or it made me angry. Well, that's another reason why most men report later on in life or further away from their incident because it doesn't register until later. As survivors, both ourselves, Devel, one thing that is common is victim blaming. And we blame ourselves for what happened. We blame ourselves because we didn't, as men, fight back because we have that physical capability and stuff like that and another thing is involuntary arousal which can make us think that it was consensual in the first place did you feel like you should have fought back at the time and did you blame yourself in that in the same way that other survivors probably have yeah um i didn't feel like i should have fought back because i didn't register that i was in danger that's another thing you don't register you don't register these things but you just feel weird right you don't feel normal you feel you know your heart and this is things that I find in my, my literature, like your heart racing a little bit more. You're starting to have a physical reaction, a negative, what you would consider a negative physical reaction. So yeah, physiologically aroused, but not in your head, right? So you don't register it. And what was the second part of your question again? I'm sorry. So the second part of the question was around involuntary arousal. And this can happen and to some abuse survivors and make them think that it was consensual because their body reacted to it rather than their body was aroused by it. Did you feel that way too? Yeah, and and that's why myself, 
and a lot of other survivors, we just think it was non-consensual sex because we was like, well, if I didn't really want it, I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be hard. And that's not the case at all. When you look at women, some women even they still get you know wet, they still get lubricated when they go through these things, right? So it happens. But did I blame myself? I did blame myself, but not how you would think. Not like, oh man, I shouldn't have put myself in that situation. It was really like, man, I should have noticed this, but I didn't. And then you do what quote unquote men are taught to do and suppress it and then go on about your life. Right. But you definitely have no doubt in your mind that it was your your fault. Before we move on to when you spoke about gangs, Devel, do you think that there is a sex bias between the way we talk about and cover male and female perpetrators of sexual abuse in the media? Of course. I think I think everyone know that. Even when I speak to women, they know that as well, right? Now here's the thing. Women are let's not get this, you know, mistaken. Women are sexually assaulted at a much higher rate than yeah. men, right? So the fact that we're speaking about women more in media doesn't surprise me and it makes sense. But here's the thing. We don't know the exact number of men that are being sexually assaulted. We can we can um speculate, but men don't report way less than women. Like a lot of women don't report as well, but men, they don't report as well. I think when we speak about sexual violence, we need to speak about it with gender neutral terms. Mm-hmm. We need to say when somebody sexually assaults somebody, you know, sexually assaults somebody, when this person sexually assaults this person, because when we put the gender on it every single time, we reinforce the stereotypes that men are always the perpetrators and women are always the victims. So it's definitely a, a big bias that a lot of us in academia and in general are trying to uh, debunk. After those traumas, you were sucked into gang culture, which you had said you've been surrounded by growing up. Why were you drawn into it? What vulnerability or personality trait or something else made you succumb to it? Okay, so I didn't realize this until I got older. But so I was I was raised by my dad. And one thing about America, there was a big shift in the 80s, 90s, the 80s and 90s, where a lot of, you know, you heard of the prison industrial complex, right? A lot of the black fathers were taken away from their families, whether it was gang violence or going to prison and getting more prison sentences. So I consider myself lucky that I was raised, you know, by my father because none of my cousins was, wasn't. Only literally one of my cousins, none of my friends knew their father. So I'm with my father and he was not strict, but, you know, he was stern. And I'm around individuals who weren't raised by their father. And a lot of the times they had more relaxed parental guidance. So they, you know, they doing what they want. You keep in mind, I was abused when I was younger. So I didn't want to feel vulnerable, right? I'm a smaller guy. I'm I'm a shorter guy. And I've always been a shorter guy. So you want to overcompensate. And I didn't Mm. realize that at the time, but it's not necessarily, well, slash like 50% overcompensation, but 50% not wanting to be a victim again. Right. Yeah. So I didn't necessarily need to join a gang for survival. Like some individuals join gangs because the family aspect. Right. I had the family aspect. Some individuals join gangs just be violent. I didn't join for that either. I wanted money and I wanted to prove that essentially that I wasn't weak. So that's what I did. (laughs) Uh, I did it and, um, you know, it backfired on me. 
as it do for a lot of individuals. But, you know, I wanted money and I wanted to prove, I guess, to myself and to other individuals that I'm not a victim. And that stems mm. from being abused as a, as a child. Like you mentioned earlier, you ended up going to prison for the crimes you committed on the roads, as we say in the UK. So I'm not going to ask you what crimes you committed, don't worry. But what was the prison experience like? Was it a big wake-up call? Yeah, it was. It was, you know. And in the States, we, we have a separation between jail and prison. So I was in jail. Prison is when you're going to do like an extended amount of time, right? But you all, y'all just call it prison. So I was in there. wasn't in there for too long, but it was a wake-up call. So my charge was, initially, I was charged with first degree robbery right again i was trying to get money i was trying to be greedy but then they knocked down my charge thank god because i was already going off to college and you know they realized that but um no it was a, it was a wake up call and plus i was 17 so in the states i don't know if they do it here but in the states when you're 16 or 17 they can charge you as an adult if your crime is severe enough so they were thinking about charging me as an adult. And then on top of that, I'm black. So statistically speaking, in the States, if you are black or Latino, you are charged as an adult at a much higher rate than white men. So they was going to charge me as an adult. So I was going to go to like big boy, like big boy prison, right? And that's a serious charge. So even when I was locked up because I had a, I cut my charge in a, a violent way, they put me in a certain pod with a... Uh, Kids my age who committed more serious crimes, kids my age who also who committed murder. So you're surrounded by these individuals and you just realize like, damn, I shouldn't be here. I'm not like him. I'm not like him. But in reality, the way that you're moving, you are. You are like this individual, right? And it's not to have a stigma on those individuals, but you would never think you're being eaten or becoming friends with uh, somebody who killed somebody else, right? Yeah. But they're looking at you like, oh, we we in the same boat. I just committed this crime, you know, if you was out for another two weeks, maybe you would have killed somebody. And that's not the case. And that's not where I really wanted to be. And once I got out, I was on, um, I guess you all would call it tag. <laughs> I was on house arrest <laughs> and I was 17 at the time. So I was on house arrest basically until I turned 18. That's a long time. And before that, before I even got locked up, I was out of the house, you know, I was, I was homeless for a little bit. And then I had moved in with a friend. And then I got locked up, so I had to go home. So I was there, and I was like, man, this is whack. This is not the life that I, <laughs> I want to live. You basically did the COVID-19 lockdown experience before the COVID-19 exactly. lockdown. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's how exactly how it felt. But worse, because I'm, I'm a kid. So Yeah. Let's move on to university now, because despite all of this trauma, a prison sentence, you were good academically developed and you managed to secure a university place. How proud of yourself were you? And who's the devil we meet at this point? I was really proud, man. I was really proud. Like, I always knew that I wasn't a... Uh, <laughs> I was always a smart kid. I was always a smart kid. And I, and I say smart, I don't mean like book smart. I just worked hard, right? I always had a good yeah. work ethic. You know, smarts and intelligence is subjective depending on who you speak to. So I was really proud of myself. And, you know, in the States, school isn't free. I secured a, a academic scholarship, which is a difficult thing to do. But I um, got one. So that made me even more proud. So the DeVille that you meet today is a is a refined DeVille. Somebody who pulls from his experiences, who pulls from his environment, but also is very culturally aware, culturally competent, and culturally experienced. You know, I've I've lived in Uganda. I lived in Sudan. I've been all around America. I've I've been to uh, a lot of places, and I take from all these experiences and I learn. 
I'm a firm believer that you don't have to be a product of your environment, but the way you was raised is still going to be in you. So being in academia, I was able to gain new skills, refine those skills. And this is who I am now. You said you were never psychiatrically evaluated despite all of the trauma you went through, Develle. And this is coming back to the point we're similar ages that mental health just wasn't a thing when we were growing yeah. up. Looking back, do you think if you had been, the events which we've just discussed wouldn't have happened? Oh, definitely. They definitely have. Like, I didn't get psychologically evaluated until I was put in a psychiatric hospital, right? Until I was forced to go to one. And then, and we could touch on this later if you want, but I was diagnosed with um, bipolar disorder. And when I was younger, once I found that out, I started to look back and I was like, wow, that makes sense. Because I was very like quick to anger. You know, you try me, okay, we about to fight. And then I feel bad. Let's yeah. Go. Bowdy, yeah. Bowdy. yeah. Then yeah. I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's fight. And or somebody would say something to me and I would escalate it, right? Like, man you know, why you got those shoes on? You know, just joking. And I'm like, what do you mean why I got the shoes on? You don't like my shoes? How about I take your shoes then? Since you think I'm, you know, so it's just, it, you escalate these things. And once I found these out, I was able to see like, wow, this is why I was acting like that. So it definitely would have changed the trajectory of my life if I would have got evaluated when I was younger. Let's talk about that admittance into the psychiatric hospital, develop because your mental health got to a point where you unfortunately tried to take your own life. So can you tell me about the events leading up to it and what was your mental health like at this point? Well, again, I was, I was, I guess at the time I was depressed. So what happened was I just take you there that night. I went to the movies. This was the summer between my freshman year and my sophomore year in college. So I'm 19 years old. Keep in mind, none of my friends from high school, like one of my close friends, like went to college, right? None of my family went to college. My dad has a degree, but he got his later on. So I'm really like a first generation college student. I go to school, I'm on scholarship, I do well, right? And you know what it is, I was doing well in life and I have never experienced that before. I had never experienced a state of peace, really. Like my dad raised us to survive, but he didn't teach us to live. And what I mean by that, like to enjoy the fruits of our labor. So I didn't have anything to do. I, I didn't have any things to look for. And I still, you know, going through my moods. And I'm just like, okay. So to take you to that night, I literally went to the movies. I remember the movie was Lucy. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Basically, it was a movie about time. So I watched the movie. And at the end of the movie, I was like, well, I don't know what I was on, but I was like, time is, you know, socially constructed. It really doesn't matter if I live or die. I don't know why. I was like, it really doesn't matter if I live or die. And it was raining that night. And literally I went to my apartment. I grabbed the sheet. I went to the park and, you know, tried to hang myself. And when I woke up, the cops was there. So I had failed, right? I failed. The cops was there. They put me in the hospital. And I was like, oh, you know. It was just a mood. I'm fine now. And it was like, nah, we're taking you to the to the place, which I absolutely hated. So mm. that's that's how I got there, got to that point. Not understanding myself. When you came out of that psychiatric hospital then, who is the Devel we meet here? And how did you get better? Because you said that medication is something which helped your mental yeah. health. So why did it help you? Uh, it helped me because... 
I found the right medication. I know a lot of individuals don't like to use medication when it comes to mental health, especially a lot of men and then people uh, people of color, right? But I found the right medication. It took three times, but, you know, I stayed the course. And, you know, it's not an end-all, be-all. It's not a perfect thing, and I still go through my moods, but it helps, right? It helps me. So I'm, I'm a firm believer in medication, and I know a lot of individuals aren't. But it shaped me because... My medication that I'm on, it doesn't make me get too happy or too sad, you know, so too high or too low. So I'm pretty much, yeah, in the in the middle, right? Now, there was a time where I stopped cold turkey. I was like, you know, I don't want to do this. I think I'm good. And my body was physically dependent on it. So I start to withdraw and then I start going wild. <laughs> you know, my anxiety was high. I start to have those behaviors again of, who are you talking to? Who are you looking at? I start having those behaviors again, and I realized that I wasn't ready. <laughs> so I'm on medication now. And again, if you're thinking about doing medication, I would definitely say, you know, look into it. The final part of your journey we're going to discuss about is your work with Survivors UK as a counsellor. So how did you get into it, first of all? And have you done therapy and has it been helpful for you too? Okay, so first, I'm with Survivors UK, but I'm a, I'm an ISVA. I'm actually an ISVA, so I do counsel some people. Okay. But I'm an ISVA, which is an independent sexual assault advisor. So I help individuals through the criminal justice process. And I'm also a co-groups facilitator for Survivors as well. But have I been in therapy? I have been in therapy and therapy for me was a hit or miss until I actually, for me, I had a black therapist, a black male mm-hmm. therapist, and it changed how I thought about therapy, right? So I think when you do therapy, it's about finding the right individual. And once I did that, I, uh, it was great. It was great. So yeah, I love it. I, I like therapy. I always recommend it. Would you say that the work you do as Survivors UK is the part of your life you're most proud of, given what you've been through? Part of my life I'm most proud of? That's a, that's a big question. I wouldn't say it's the part of my life I'm most proud of. It's a part of my life where I can see, like, if I died today, I know that I left a stain on this world, you know? I can see... A good stain. Yeah, a good stain. <laughs> a good stain, uh, a good print. I can see the fruits of my labor and the fruits of my work, right? Like speaking to men and having these men, like men that you wouldn't even expect, you know, they'll break down. You know, I, I work with, you know, some footballers, British mm-hmm. footballers, you know, some rugby some mm-hmm. rugby players, some of these tough guys, and they'll break down when they tell you these stories, right? But you talk to them, you know, you give them emotional support and you can hear in their voice how they are healing or how they thinking about things. You know, I've been to court with some of these individuals and you can see how vulnerable they are and how strong they feel at the end of these court proceedings. You know, I've got emails, I've gotten calls of individuals thanking me and maybe I may have changed the trajectory of some of these men's lives. You know, like you meet them and they may be homeless or they may be struggling really bad. And a year later or months later, they're doing well, they got a new job. You can tell they're doing better by how the way they conceptualize what happened to them. So I definitely say this is one of the moments in my life where I would look back and say, I did something for humanity. We both hear a lot of stories of abuse, develop, and they could be pretty traumatic, as we both know. How do you self-care and emotionally detach from those stories so it doesn't affect your own mental health or you're not triggered or affected by them as you go about your day-to-day life outside of 
listening or counseling? Well, it, it can be difficult. And to be honest with you, man, I, I've been having a difficult patch because I am getting my PhD and this is my research. And then when I actually work, this is my work as well. So I'm surrounded, whenever I'm doing work, I'm surrounded by this all of the time. So right now I'm actually going to take a break from my studies. I just spoke to my university and also I see a therapist as well. So it's not easy to separate mm. from these things, right? Mm. Because one, you're passionate about it and you need to have compassion and empathy to work in this field, but also it, it can be draining. It, it is draining. Mm. So you just have to have boundaries, you know, set your boundaries and stick to those boundaries. But it's, it's definitely difficult, man. You try to speak to individuals. That's what I do. You know, I, I speak to individuals who I know will understand. But now it's a difficult thing to do. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now. So if you could go back and talk to the Devel who was being abused by that male perpetrator or by the female perpetrator, the Devel who was sucked into gang culture or the Devel who had just tried to take his own life, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Oh, what would I say to him? Oh, I would say I'm proud of you. That's what I would say. I would say I'm proud of you and keep talking to yourself. You know, I mm. I used to get, um people used to make fun of me for talking to myself. That's what I would say because, you know, I've been through a lot. We, we all have been through a lot. But to see where I am now, I would say, you know, I'm proud of you. And because I trust myself and I'm self-aware, I think me being abused or me, like if I was that developer that was abused or in gang culture, if I was to speak to myself and my older self was to say, I'm proud of you, then I know what that means. I would know what that means that I'm, you know, doing well and stay the course and also stay self-aware, stay self-aware, always self-reflect. So basically encourage myself to continue to do the good things that I was doing for myself. Our final topic of conversation, Devel, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, bro? My mental health, it's okay. It's okay. It could be better. Like I said, I'm trying to uh, balance my studies and, and my work right now. So it could be better, but I think deep down I'm joyful. Happiness okay. happiness comes and goes, but joy, in my in my opinion, is something that stays like I'm grateful for where I'm at and I say I have good problems, right? They're problems, mm. but I'm not struggling to eat. So <laughs> that's good. So my mental health is okay. It can be better and it will be better. I love that answer, man. I love that honesty. If you felt comfortable saying what mental health issues or conditions do you live with, if any, and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? Okay, so I have bipolar disorder and I also have borderline personality disorder as well, but... So how does it affect me in my day-to-day? I take my medication. As long as my medication does what it's supposed to do, I'm the devil that everybody knows. I'm, you know, happy, funny. Their words, not mine. You know, energetic. <laughs> I, I'm that devil. But sometimes my mood changes, right? You know, I can go on a two-week period where my mood will change rapidly. The color of my room will make me angry. A certain smell will make me depressed. A certain sight will make me anxious so it can be a lot I can be good for three weeks and then another two weeks I'm depressed and you know a lot of individuals know how that go you're struggling to get up you're struggling to take care of yourself to eat 
So, yeah. A lot of my listeners, Develle, might be aware of bipolar in particular because of the education around it, the dichotomy between manic and depressive episodes. But borderline is something which is still really little understood. I read a whole book on it and I still don't really understand it. Can you just explain how borderline affects you and how it interacts or informs the bipolar as well? Okay, so a lot of people, you know, some years ago before they knew exactly what bipolar was, they think it's your mood is changing rapidly throughout the day, right? Like one hour like this, yeah. When it's really over a duration, you know, of periods. So it'd be a week mm. or two weeks, right? But the borderline personality disorder for me manifests itself and my mood's changing rapidly throughout the day, right? So it kind of makes sense because I guess you would have a different personality, but for three hours out the day, I would be like crazy hype, you know? Like, let's go here, let's go here, I'm ready, I'm ready. To the point to where it's annoying some people like, man, I don't know if this guy is going to hit me. Like he's jumping off of walls and then I may hear a song and now I'm in a sad state. You know, I'm sitting there. So what people used to think bipolar depression was, how it changes rapidly, that's how borderline personality manifests itself in me. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health development? Who was it with? What impact did it have? And did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite normal and insignificant and easy to do? Well, it depends on what do you mean by conversation? Do you mean first productive conversation or first conversation in general? Because first conversation in general, you would have when you was a kid about your mental health to a certain extent, like you're acting out right now or why are you so angry? Get that together. Why are you acting emotional? Those are like the, really the first conversations that you have. The first productive conversation happened after I uh, was hospitalized, right? So it came at me like, you know, doctors speaking to me and all of that. And I'm just like, man, I'm not this person. I'm not this person. So if I had to pinpoint, it would be a conversation with one of my mentors at the time, an older guy and he was just you know how are you doing and he was a man so I never had a healthy conversation in which I trusted not even when I was in the hospital right but he was just calm he said yeah man I've dealt with that when I was younger these things can happen these things can happen and I felt heard I felt heard and I felt listened to by this man and and it was a significant thing it was significant because an older man was speaking to me about this. He was vulnerable. He allowed me to be vulnerable without judgment. And he was describing things that I have, have felt and was feeling at the time. And I have never really experienced that in a, hey, you're going to be okay. There is something wrong with you. And it's it's okay to say that, right? You don't need to be this hyper-masculine man or this macho man, right? You get strength from actually talking about it. And that was like one of the first times I ever heard that, right? You're strong when you conceptualize your feelings and discuss them and address them. So it was a good time. Despite all of the trauma you went through, Develle, from an early age, what age did you become self-aware of your mental health for the first time and realize that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Um, I would have to say I probably was 20. I start having all these realizations after... I was hospitalized. Now, I know a lot of men, they realize this later on in life. Some of them realize it once they're already in prison, 
or once mm. their relationship went down the drain. It's typically mid twenties, so I feel like I'm lucky that I I got mine early ish. So I, I was a I was about twenty. I was about twenty years old. Mm. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, a social environment. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I haven't figured all of them out. And that's that's been a big thing. Like Even when I speak to therapists, that's a big thing is to find the triggers. I know one trigger that I have is when I see somebody, like, so when I see, you know, homeless or houseless individuals, because I, I can relate to them. Right. When I see individuals who may have physical, you know, outward disabilities, that's also a trigger for me because I know individuals like that that's close to me. I have family that's like that is close to me. So I know that sends me into depression. Another trigger that I know that I have is when I'm having a debate and I'm, uh, I used to be on a debate team, so I can debate. But when I feel like I'm being ganged up on, I start to get anxiety and I start to get hyper hyper aware and it can make me very very angry when it probably really shouldn't mm. it's just that my opinion is different from everybody else's at the point mm. so those are like three triggers that i know i have but the other triggers i haven't figured out yet but therapy okay will help conversely then what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't what tools and methods well again me i've always been self-aware and self-reflective so not lying to yourself i don't lie to myself i remember i was younger and my dad would be like you know you can lie to anybody you want but don't lie to yourself at least and i know it sounds like a simple statement but honestly and truly when you don't lie to yourself when you in a situation and you just like you're jealous don't try to sugarcoat it tell yourself like no you're jealous of this so being self-aware also being stoic I try to focus, this also goes into self-awareness, focus on my perception of things. So why do I perceive it like that? I shouldn't perceive it like that. Be indifferent about the things you should be indifferent to, right? You don't need to have an emotion on everything. Some things, it is what it is. So that helps. Yeah, medication. (laughs) Medication helps as well. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health development? It could be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. Okay, that would probably be, it's a stoicism book. I think it's called Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And basically, it's just talking about your perception. Change your perception. Like It's not about the things that's ha- that happens to you. It's about your judgment of them, right? When you understand that, you start to understand yourself more. Like, why am I viewing things this way? And change your perception, you know, like be more positive about things. So it's a very good mental health book. And it's a a philosophy that I think is uh, great. And as a final question, Devel, and this is a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? I think we as men need to have conversations with ourselves the thing is women a lot of the times they speak amongst themselves about topics that they face right men we don't speak amongst ourselves about topics that we face we have started to do it more but we don't do it a lot like the conversation that you and i are having is good you know we need to really speak to ourselves and allow ourselves to be vulnerable allow the next man to be vulnerable around me, right? 
let him know that I'm not going to challenge you. I'm not going to think you're more or less of a man, right? I think once we become comfortable with ourselves, around ourselves, we can have these conversations and that we will understand that we have a lot of the same experiences. Devel Heath, thank you so much for coming on the Just Check In podcast. I've absolutely loved this man. And just thank you again for sharing your story with me. Of course, man. Thank you for having me. And I really appreciate it and appreciate the uh, things that, you, that you're doing. So keep going. Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Checking Podcast. Thank you to everyone who's tuned in for this episode and for getting this far. I want to say a big thank you to Devel for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him and sharing his incredible story of abuse, survival, and how he's now using his story to help others through academia. I'll put some links to where you can follow Devel on social media and find out more about his study in the show notes. I'll sign us off by saying if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support the podcast further, you can go to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. Or you can visit our GoFundMe if you want to make a one-off donation. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. <laughs>